Dear Jesus, I ask that uh, your presence will be here with us through the Holy Spirit and that everything that is said and done will be according to your will and that you'll help us learn something more about you, about the Bible, and about um, your will for our lives because of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So why don't we start down at the end uh, with Pastor Wolberg. Uh, if you could introduce us, maybe say just a little bit about your ministry, and then tell it. There's a microphone right beside Andy there. Um, you three are going to share one, and then we're going to share one. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your ministry, and then um, tell us the most common question that young people ask you, and feel free to go ahead and answer it. Okay, I'll have to think about that question. Uh, my name is Steve Wahlberg. I'm the director of Whitehorse Media, which is a ministry based in uh, northern Idaho. Our website is whitehorsemedia.com. We are a small group, but the Lord has given us a lot of influence. We produce uh, television programs, radio programs. I give seminars as I travel around the country. We have an online Bible school and uh, do a lot of radio interviews on all kinds of secular news and talk shows. And our goal is to help people to get ready for the coming of Christ. Uh, we picked the name White Horse Media because of Revelation 19 that describes Jesus coming on a white horse. And um, we love the Lord and we're excited about being in his work. Uh, I have a lovely wife who's not here and two little children, a three-year-old and a six-year-old. And I think my greatest responsibility right now is to be a husband and a dad. And I do the best I can to do that. As far as the question, the the biggest question I get from young people probably these days is what do you think about Twilight, uh, the Twilight Vampire series, or why is it wrong? <laughs> why did you write a book called The Trouble with Twilight? And so we have a whole talk on that and a couple books on it. And um, I won't answer that question right now, but if you want to ask it, then I'll go into more detail. So I guess that's about it. My name is Eugene Pruitt, and like many Americans, I'm currently in between jobs. Uh, but just a few weeks ago, I was working for Washita Hills College, which is one of the best schools in North America. I would recommend it to you. And in a few more weeks, I'll be working for Amazing Facts, which is centered, of course, near here. And what we'll be doing then, my wife and I, Heidi, will be traveling from AFCO to AFCO to AFCO. Uh, that is, there will be AFCO programs in many countries right now, England, Ukraine. India starts next month, and the Philippines will start this coming January, and we'll be doing itinerant teaching there. And uh, the most common question that young people ask me, I'm sure, is some variant of, how do I know God's will for my life? I'm sure it's that. and That's not a short question to answer, but maybe... Uh, a two-minute thought on it. The fifth volume of the testimonies on page 512 says that there are three ways that God speaks to us, really to show us his will and to show us how to show that will to others. And the first one there, and these are in order, they're not just a random hodgepodge, priority, the first one is by going to the inspired writings. It's by the Bible. You can't skip that one to get the others. The other two, which are there, when you go to his word first, there is a place there for counseling with the brethren and for watching the indications of providence, for the impressions of the spirit. Really, those are ways that God guides. And then in the book Education on page 267, you have a little paragraph that says there are four rules that would assure success in choosing a vocation. 
And young people want to know how to choose a life calling, what's going to be their occupation. I'd look there in the page, education, page 267. Yeah, that would be the short answer. My name is Andy M. I um, teach here at Weimar College in the religion department, and I've been here for about uh, going on four years uh, now. And I'm married to a, a beautiful, wonderful wife that just walked in with our little dog, Riley. I don't even know if we're allowed to do that. but um, And, uh, yeah, we love it here at Weimar. One of the, quest the question that is asked uh, to me a lot is the same one that was asked uh, that Eugene just addressed, and I would just go uh, with what he said. And, uh, and just to add to that, uh, as far as the experiential uh, aspect of it, um, it is, is a, a component of faith is, is waiting on God in spite of, of not knowing. And as you're doing these things, God will ultimately reveal it uh, to you. And that's, that's another important part of the process. Well, my name, <clears throat> my name is Chester Clark, and I'm, I have taught for the last about 15 years at Washita Hills also, Academy and College. And the last two years, I've been at Andrews University working on a master's degree in church history. And um, that's a, an interest of mine. And um, I'm praying about whether to continue on a PhD uh, in that area. But um, right now, I'm in the process of moving from Michigan to Georgia, where uh, in eight days, nine days, I'll be getting married. And so that sort of consumes my, uh, my thinking at the moment, uh, besides Western Youth Conference, of course. <laughs> and uh, so I think the, the question that I was thinking about, it, it may not always be the most common, but um, perhaps the most important question that young people often ask me is, how do I surrender my heart completely to God? And, um, you know, we, we hear about total surrender, and we hear about giving God everything. And sometimes those, um, those all-inclusive terms seem daunting, because how do you know you got everything? How do you know you surrendered everything? How can you know you got, got, gave God everything? And I think young people sometimes struggle with that. And so the short answer that I have given is that, you know, God does say in Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. And I don't think that that means we have to look with all of our heart. I think that means we look with a willingness to surrender all of our heart. And the way we, the way I answer that is that God usually calls for something that is the dearest to our heart. And he calls us to surrender that. Because we couldn't make a list of everything, right? Everything, every possible thing that's in our lives, good and bad, that makes sure it's all surrendered. But what God, the Holy Spirit does do is it calls for something that's very near and dear. And if we surrender that which is the nearest and dearest to our hearts, we have surrendered everything. So for each person, on a daily basis, we have an opportunity to make that entire surrender. And I think it's a different thing as we go through our Christian experience, as we go through our lives. Maybe it's, maybe it's even something good he's asking us to put on the altar, to surrender to him. Uh, maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's a habit. Um, but 
Whatever that is, the Holy Spirit is, is pulling on your heartstrings to surrender to him, to place on the altar, to give him control of, whether it's your future, whether it's your talents, whether it's a relationship, whether it's something you have or a sin. When we surrender that thing, we've made a complete surrender to God. I'm Rachel Nelson. I was not a speaker for Western Youth Conference. I'm a pediatrician, and I work as a pediatric hospitalist in Roseville, California. So I work with a lot of kids. Probably one of the most common questions I have been asked and dealt with myself from Adventist young people and adults is um, the concept, I have never been out in the world. I've never smoked. I've never drunk. I've never slept around. How in the world can I have a testimony? And I think a lot of young people who've grown up Adventists wonder that. And I'll be honest, I've never done any of that. I don't know what alcohol tastes like. I don't even know what caffeine tastes like. Because I've made it all the way through medical school without any coffee. So um, I can freely admit that I have struggled with this question. And it would take a long... Um, I refer you to... Uh, Chester Clark's wonderful sermon the first night. If you didn't hear it, listen to it on audio verse because he addressed it in great depth. And it was a wonderful sermon. But in brief, I just want to refer you to Ecclesiastes 11, verse 7. Or excuse me, verse 8. But if a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they shall be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of, the, of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart. Put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. And then and continuing on to Ecclesiastes 12. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. While the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them. God really especially wants young people who have dedicated their lives to him from their childhood. He loves people who have messed up. Don't get me wrong. But I'm speaking specifically to young people who haven't yet or who haven't you know, done some of the grosser sins. I, boy, I misspoke there. Who haven't been out in the world. God loves you. And he can have a special effective testimony for you without having to go out and experience the world. So at this time, uh, if you have a question that you'd like to ask um, to the panel in general or to a specific person up on the panel, um, feel free to raise your hand while you're thinking about that. I'll get started uh, with some of the questions uh, that have been given. Um, I noticed that the questions are tend to be grouped into about four areas. One was music, and we'll uh, ask some questions about that. One was relationships. One was theology, some of the more theological stuff. And then there was a lot of practical questions that I think are very good as well. So we'll try to um, hit some questions in each of these areas. Um, the first question that I'm going to uh, ask here um, I thought was a very good one. Are there some questions that Ellen White says we shouldn't argue about? If so, what are they? And why do we argue about them? So the answer is yes. Okay, the answer is yes. Uh, 
you might be interested to know that one of those would be the issue of the literality of the number 144,000. Uh, Ellen White addresses questions that she calls, I forget if the word is curiosity questions, but she says that we should not encourage this kind of, of digging after things that are not revealed. And among the things she lists there would be how many are sealed. And of course, those that are sealed are the 144,000. So yeah, there's one of them. We should not argue about anything that is not thoroughly revealed. And this is even in the Bible. Even if we don't go to Ellen White, it's right there in Romans 14. I can receive you and you can receive me, but we shouldn't receive each other to the level of doubtful disputations. If it's not settled, then we shouldn't try to make an issue of it. There's no inspired ground for resolving that, and it's going to lead to conflict. But of course, the person always thinks it's settled. It's the problem, so... Sometimes I think that those questions are actually more numerous than we would we would suppose. The questions that we shouldn't be arguing about, that is. Um, if, you, if you look at Adventist history, you find that there were, in Ellen White's time, a number of significant theological debates raging. And uh, one of the more pronounced of those was one that I think if it were to be occurring today, we would probably be feeling was pretty important. And that was the nature of the law in Galatians. And uh, Ellen White is very clear in her counsel to both sides of the debate that this is not something that should be made a matter of controversy between us. In fact, she says, we agree on the, the main pillars of our message. We should put differences like this aside, and the world should never know that we disagree. It's one thing for, for us to discuss and to try to, to, try to um, you know, come to a better understanding together in a collegial way, but it's another thing when we're fighting each other publicly and we're causing controversy and conflict. And unfortunately, within conservative Adventism, we tend to be rather dogmatic about tr positions that we've taken. And we, we, we sometimes have a higher valuation for the specific nuances of truth than we have a valuation for the unity and love for our brethren. And that needs to be something that is given a higher place in our, in our valuation. While we're waiting for Mark to get the uh, microphone back there, uh, here's a relationship question. How far is too far when you're dating? And the person who um, gave the question said they don't mean distance relationships. I think you understand the question. I'll throw out a response to that. <coughs> I would say... Uh, no touching below the neck and no kissing until you're engaged. That's my view. You may not like it, but that's my view. I think, I think something that when Eric and I were dating, we found very helpful is remembering that the angels of God are always with you. And if you would be embarrassed for your mom to see it, you'd probably be embarrassed for an angel to watch it. what she said. There's a question back here. I'm not sure what the most comprehensive way to approach this question, but we were learning about true education. What would be the balance between a young person wanting true education, yet recognizing the requirements of the world in terms of all the letters behind your name, yet fulfilling 
the spiritual aspect of their future desires. I think the whole question of accreditation probably has something to do with that as well, recognizing the world's standards and yet wanting to please God first of all. I would say something about it. Seek ye first the kingdom. And here's what I'm thinking. I've known a number of young people who had a self-delusion that they would get their secular education and then go for a year or two to get their spiritual education. And I would say, reverse your plan. Get your spiritual education, and you might be shocked. Don't tell them this ahead of time, but you'd be shocked that if you send 10 of those young people into a true education environment for a year or two, how many of them will abandon their plans for a secular life calling in favor of putting their whole life into the three angels' messages? And uh, getting straight things first, that's what I would say. I want to go back to the previous question about how far is too far. I want to just say a little bit more about that. Um, <laughs> when, when, when two people are, are getting to know each other and when they're dating, um, you know, the biggest concern really for a Christian should be, is this the person that God has chosen for me to have as a life companion? Now in the world, that's not their question. But for a Christian, that should be the question. You know, Lord, is this the helpmate? Now, when a person starts getting involved in physical contact, uh, it, it affects your ability to think clearly and to discern God's will. And so the safest thing to do, really, until you know that the Lord is leading you to be with this person, is to avoid... Um, you know, muddying the waters and affecting your ability to think. And once you know that the Lord is leading and then you make that commitment and you get engaged. Now, I do know a couple that they didn't even kiss until they got married. And that's not my, you know, my position, although I certainly don't think it would be a bad idea. <laughs> it's definitely a, extremely safe. But, uh, you know, we need to be very careful. And that's why I said that we shouldn't be involved in physical contact uh, until after we're engaged, because then we've got the mental clarity to know that the Lord is leading me, and I make the commitment that I'm going to to marry this person. So that's the reason behind, I think, the high standard of uh, of that kind of involvement. Um, back to that question. I think it's a very good question because even in the Lord's work, sometimes this question comes up of. You know, is there a trade-off between excellence in serving God and excellence as far as the world goes? And I remember on your Facebook page back when you had Facebook, um, there was a discussion about that, and it was a very good discussion just from all the comments. And you mentioned that you're currently thinking about pursuing a doctorate, and I was wanting, wondering if you'd share a little bit more about your thought process there because I think it speaks to this issue. Well, it is it is something that I've been thinking and praying about, and it, um, I plan to pursue if God leads. But I think that there's there's there are there are a variety of considerations to take into into factor here. When you have a um, when you when you want the when you want the world's approval, just for the world's approval, or just for the status, or just for the title, then I think that you need to go back to square one and say, well, what what is my motivation, and what will it what, how will it benefit God's work for me to have this this advanced degree? Um, there are other uh, there are other times when an advanced degree or accreditation, 
depends on which angle you're coming at this question from. It helps other people to know what you know. And, um, for example, one of my thought processes is I really want to use church history. I want to use Christian church history as an apologetic for teaching the Adventist message. I believe, because the truth is on our side, history is on our side too. And so as you can see how the truth has been lost sight of through the centuries and trace also how it has been recovered and rediscovered through the centuries, you can, you can give an, an argument for the Adventist message that is, it's, it's a little different than your traditional you know, evangelistic series where we just we use proof text. And I'm an evangelist. I believe in those methods. But I think this is, some, this is an approach that attracts a different mind, a different type of person. So I've, as I've been thinking about it, I really don't think, unless I have an ambition to just you know, teach at one of our Adventist universities, I don't really feel that I have a great need for a PhD. But if I'm wanting to make a credible argument to the world they are looking to see what authority I have to say these things. I mean, anyone can go on the Internet and pick a video or write a book or whatever else today and say something. But what's, what's, the, what's, the, um, what's the weight behind it? So I think there are times when, um, even when while seeking of the kingdom of God first, of course, there are times when the work of God can be benefited by having work done in an academic environment where it's peer-reviewed, where it's given more credibility than if it's just done sort of on your own with your own research. And so that's some of the thinking behind my thought processes. Um, the, the, I guess one answer is you can always come to Weimar College. <laughs> no, I, and I'm just kidding with that. I, I don't think there is a, a one-size-fit-all response. And I believe that God needs people in, in all aspects of society. Uh, whether as physicians, God may call Daniels to be statesmen. Ellen White has this quote where she says, uh, addressing young people, if they have ambitions to one day sit in legislative councils and to do something great for God, she, uh, and you get this impression that maybe she's going to rebuke those sentiments. But in fact, she not only uh, uh, acknowledge, you know, see, uh, puts them in a positive spin, she also encouraged uh, encourages the youth to go forward in that endeavor. So I think we need to uh, ask ourselves, what is God's purpose for me? And that may be Weimar, that may be Wachita Hills, that may be uh, Andrews, but wherever God uh, instructs you to go, that's the place where you need to be. Ellen White's counsel on this topic is broad. And uh, she even addresses the, directly the issue of secular universities for Adventist students. And it's not a don't go. It, quite on the contrary, it's, a, it's dangerous to go. She indicates that young people are in peril in those schools unless they have a groundwork of a habit of daily thorough consecration. And the, the fear that Ellen White expresses in her writings is that people who are inclined to send themselves the secular route are specifically the ones who are not qualified to go there safely. And uh, as a result, we lose a tremendous number of young people in the process of education. God does not use kamikaze missionaries. He doesn't send people into a field that he hasn't prepared them to deal with. And um, 
Yeah, you can find in Selected Messages a whole section on this issue of public universities. Kamikaze missionaries. I like that. Let's talk about music a little bit. Um, could you give me some biblical principles for selecting Christian music? Let me find a verse in Ephesians. Chapter 5. Ephesians 5.19 says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And the previous verse talks about, when it talks about spiritual songs, the previous verse talks about being filled with the Spirit, not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Spirit. So I think, first of all, um, a person does need to be fully surrendered to the Lord. And we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will guide our conscience and to lead us in, in those choices. Uh, I do think that there is a, there's a range of variety. Um, you know, God has created a lot of variety in this world. There's a lot of different colors of flowers and plants and trees. And so I don't think there's a cookie cutter response that um, everybody needs to enjoy exactly the same kind of music. There's room for variety. But I think within that variety, it needs to be um, pleasing to the Lord. It needs to be spiritual. It needs to be uh, from your heart to God. Uh, I, you know, I just tell you my own experience as I was a teenager, I've sh shared this before, I was uh, deeply into the rock and roll scene. And after I became a Christian, I got rid of all my old secular music. And then I started buying Christian, Christian, uh, I don't know if they were CDs back then, maybe they were still audio tapes <laughs> in the early 1980s. Uh, and, and as I listened to these, to a lot of these songs, um, some of the songs I distinctly remember, they, they still had a lot of that beat that I used to listen to when I was listening to rock and roll. But now it was connected to Christian words. And I liked the words, but the beat bothered me. And it, it bothered my conscience. And point by point, the Lord just spoke to my conscience about this. And I, I looked at this, this verse and other verses about uh, song, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And if it, for me, if, if I was surrendered to God and if a certain song bothered me, if I just didn't have peace about it inside my conscience, then I just decided to play it safe and not listen to it. And I started weaning out the things that were questionable and started listening only to the things that were, that were uh, true and pure and lovely. And as Philippians 4.8 says, that were really... Uh, having a positive in impact on my on my spiritual life, and I think, like I said, there's there's room for variety. Uh, you know, my conscience is not your conscience; yours is not mine when it comes to this area. But we do need to realize that the devil does use music. That music is a very powerful tool. Uh, Ellen White's very clear on that. Maybe you know the statement uh, specifically in the book Education, where she talks about how it's one of the most uh, seductive influences for evil is is music and. In Daniel 3, it was the music that was played that influenced all of the people to bow down. They said, when you hear the music, you bow down. And there certainly is a lot of the music of Babylon. And I don't think that we should be 
listening to the music of Babylon. We shouldn't be singing the music of Babylon. We shouldn't be um, participating in the music of Babylon. We should be singing the songs that are preparing us for heaven and that, that, we, wouldn't, that we wouldn't feel bad about singing in the presence of the angels and in the presence of Jesus. And so may your conscience be your guide, but let your conscience be guided by Scripture and keep it sensitive so the Holy Spirit can convict you, is this music strengthening the flesh or is it strengthening the things of the Spirit? And Satan is a masterpiece of mixing truth with error. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a, was a blend. And I used to do a lot of trout fishing when I was a kid. And uh, the way you catch a trout is by putting a good worm on a hook and you throw it into the stream. And the trout comes along and he, say, he sees that worm. That's a delicious, good worm. And he bites it and then he's hooked by the, the bad hook inside. So and that's the way the devil works. Uh, and I, I believe that he's a master in trying to take the good words that are biblical words, Christian words, but he, he mixes it with the world's, the world's beat, the world's music, and so that we're, we're deceived. And we think, hey, this is fine because the words are good. But the music can be strengthening the flesh and could be tempting us to go in the wrong direction. So that's my conviction. You know, I think a part of it does go back to uh, knowing God's will. And um, as, as was just being mentioned, if you can pray about something and be willing to give it to the Lord, he'll guide you. Many times I feel that we spend way too much time trying to figure out what God's will is and not nearly enough time making sure our hearts are surrendered to be willing to follow whatever God's will is. Because I really believe that if our hearts are on the altar, if we're surrendered, God has ways of showing us, uh, ways that we don't even expect. And, um, you know, touching on the, the music issue, I think there's a couple of principles that are found in the Bible. Uh, one of those principles is that God is a God that appeals to our intellect. Because in this great controversy, we have someone who has hijacked our will and tried to get us sl make us slaves to sin and to himself, Satan, and we have, on the other hand, we have God who is appealing to our, our volition, our choice, our will to love him. I believe that God, God's principles of music are those principles that tend to strengthen our willpower and not weaken our willpower. And that, that means that the music will tend to appeal to the intellect and strengthen the intellect rather than strengthening the the emotions and the feelings and the passions, the lower powers we consider them of the soul. And so I'm not going to get into all the technicalities, but there are certain types of music that definitely tend to do, the, uh, do one and do the other. And finally, if you read in Revelation chapter, um, uh, chapter 18, it's very interesting that in the fall of Babylon, that uh, verse 21 says, A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman or, or whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of the millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. So the first group of those he, he describes in Babylon that are, that are silenced, that are put out of business, are the musicians. And let's face it, this is not talking about secular musicians. As, as Avenists, we understand Babylon to be a spiritual entity. 
So please don't don't come to the conclusion that as long as it's sacred, the music is amoral. Because it was used in ancient Babylon, and John the Revelator uses in spiritual Babylon the same symbols to discuss how the music of Babylon is going to be silenced. So we need to be careful. Just because it's Christian doesn't mean it's safe for us. Thank you. We have several questions over here. Um, the scripture, I don't know the reference that talks about um, being a Gentile to the Gentile and being a Jew to the Jew and um, a Roman to the Roman uh, and so on. With that in mind, what are some principles for being in the world but not of the world? And how do you win someone from the world without being compromised? Yeah, they, I think the most important principle is, is the law of God. Uh, Daniel, I've been very impressed recently with the fact that the book of Daniel is not just a book of prophecy, but it's a book of character stories. And Daniel was a, a master of being in the world, but not of the world. He was in Babylon. He worked for the king. He had friendships and relationships with Babylonian administrators, uh, and he was very respectful toward them, and he had an influence on them, but he didn't compromise, and it talks about in when the Persian Empire took over that, the, that Daniel was then brought up into the top position above the three presidents, or he was one of the three presidents, and the 120 princes. And some of the princes and presidents were jealous of this, and they didn't want Daniel to be over them. And, and it says they tried to find some kind of fault with him, but there was, there was no fault they could find in him because he, he wasn't compromising. He was honest in everything he did. And then they decided, well, if we're going to get him, we're going to get him according to the law of his God, the law of his God. And that's when they convinced Darius to, or Darius to, pass a law that you can't pray to any God except for him for 30 days. And Daniel uh, continued to pray to God, and so he um, got thrown into the lion's den because of it. But I think what I'm trying to say is the principle is, is the, the law of God. That's where, we, that's where we don't compromise. I think we can go to be uh, to, you know, among the Romans, to be like a Roman, among the Gentiles, to be like a Gentile, to try to reach the Gentiles, among the Jews, to be like a Jew, to try to reach the Jew. I think we should go as far as we can go without violating the law of God. And once we have a clear view of the Ten Commandments and what God's will is for us based upon his law, then we'll know where that, where that line is. So I think we should adapt as much as we can, but that's where we draw the line. And that's what Daniel did. He never compromised when it comes to violating God's law. But he worked with the Babylonians, and he did it very effectively. And we've got, there's a lot we can learn from that. I think another principle you can glean is looking at John the Baptist. And it says in Desire of Ages, um, John the Baptist went from time to time to mingle with men. He was an, ever an interested observer of what was passing on in the world. And he would look at the different classes of men and try to figure out how to reach them. 
He had a different approach for the tax collectors than he had for the Pharisees. And he would study the Pharisees and he'd think, what can I do to reach them? He would study the tax collectors. What kind of thing can I do to reach them? He would study the common people. What can I do to reach them? He would study the Roman soldiers. And he would, t- um, he would make his message fit each of those different people to try to drive home the truth to their hearts. We have a question uh, over here somewhere. Yeah, um, my question is a little embarrassing. <laughs> it's a relationship question. And I've only had one relationship in my whole life. I'm about to be 28. Um, and it's been really hard to find somebody in the faith. Because my last relationship, he wasn't in the faith. And you know, I also wasn't following the faith. But I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. And um, he's just now talking about becoming baptized, but he doesn't know what faith, he doesn't understand it, but he wants to be baptized. And, but my issue is, is um, how do I find somebody that is in the faith and that's, and I'm not finding them outside of the faith? I can say something about that. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah 34. Thirty-four. Um, does anybody object if we do another ten or fifteen minutes here? We started a little bit late. Does anybody object? Okay, we'll keep going. Hmm. Isaiah thirty-four is a verse that was instrumental in my own conversion. And uh, when I was twenty-eight, I had not yet met the lady I married, which is this lady right here in the front. But verse sixteen says, "Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail." None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it has gathered them. I'll tell you, it's talking about birds, just so you, in case you look at the context. It's talking about birds. Um, But Jesus addressed this issue about God's level of care and concern. And if he takes care of birds, he loves us much more than he loves sparrows. Do you all remember Jesus talking about that? But what does he do for the birds? Because the birds don't have the wherewithal to go around and try to find someone. He brings them together. It looks to me like what God is saying is you seek first the kingdom. Set your heart in order. You're coming back to the faith just now, After, if I understood correctly your question. Get those things straight. The truth is God can have a man that has a higher quality for you the further you make it in your own life, the higher quality person he can have attracted to you. And if you set your mind on that first priority, you increase the quality of your future married bliss. And uh, yeah, first things first. There's a, there's, a verse, there's a verse in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, that says, the first thing is to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And then it says, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. And if we do that, it says he will direct our paths. And there's nothing more important outside of accepting Jesus as our savior than who we're going to spend the rest of our lives with. I mean, the first question is, am I a Christian? Have I accepted Jesus? Uh, The next is, what does he want me to do with my life for him? And then the third question is, who does he want me to spend my life with? And the Lord is very interested in, in you and in who you're going to marry. And I believe that if we, 
if we'll do the first part of that verse and acknowledge him in all of our ways, that he promises, he says, I will direct your path. Uh, I didn't get married until I was 41. I'm not trying to discourage you, <laughs> but uh, I used to work for Amazing Facts, and I would often say that I was one of Doug's bachelors. And, my, and all of my friends thought I would never get married. They thought I was the incorrigible Steve Wahlberg who would never make it. And when Kristen and I started dating, we started, you know, we claimed that verse, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And this was not the factor that made the decision. There were other, many other factors, but it was just interesting that one, one day we went into uh, a, an Adventist bookstore in Keene, Texas, and Kristen looked at the little rack of the little names. You know, she looked for Steve, and there was a Bible verse, and she looked for Kristen with her correct spelling, which is an I-N, not an E-N. It's very rare. And she found uh, my name there, Steve, and she found her name, Kristen, and she brought, she brought these two cards up to me, and we still have them. And under my name, it's the Bible verse was, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. And under her name, the verse was, In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. And while I don't believe, you know, in uh, necessarily, you know, following signs from heaven, is this the person, uh, that was a pretty good indicator to me that the Lord had his hand in this. And so that's, that's what the Bible says, that if we'll do our part, God will do his part. And if this relationship with this man, you know, if you're surrendered to him, and if your conscience is telling you, uh, because you're surrendered to Jesus first, that this man is not the one for you, then you need to you know, follow that, and God will guide you in, in that direction. Could ask the average age of the people on the platform when they got married. I think it's going to be <laughs> pr older than you are, but anyway. And and think about the privilege. Uh, I would um, invite you to study First uh, Corinthians chapter seven, that it's actually a privilege uh, to be unmarried. And and Paul gives the reason why. He says in verse uh, thirty-two, "But I want you to be without without care or anxiety. He who is unmarried or she." cares for the things uh, of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he or she who is married cares about the things of the world, or in other words, how he or she may please his, her wife or his husband. I got that mixed up, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't want to get myself in trouble here. Um, and so what I would say, and this goes along with what has been said, is that cast all your care, your energies uh, on, on how you can please God, and he will uh, give you the desires of your heart. And, uh, and that's the kind of God we serve. We have a question back here. Do we actually have time for a, an answer and a question? Question, someone will give the answer, I promise. No, I had a really awesome answer for uh, the question a little while back that I wanted to share, because asking about the music, um, in my dealings with youth, we, just in the past month, we've seen so many, uh, my friend Brock here and I have worked with college students and high school students alike, and we see such a problem with idols, with celebrities, with uh, the like. That's a big problem in our church today, especially. And a really good conclusion I came up with was, if you look to John, not was, but is, 
John 5.19, how Jesus says, I have my own self can do nothing. It's a good recipe for somebody you may look up to. If you're looking into a celebrity or someone, a musician, I see a lot of Christian rock artists who have feathered hair and leather jackets, and I instantly know that I don't want to listen to them because they just look fake. It, it has to do with what is, are, are they attributing their music, their skills, their uh, talents to God, or is it to themselves? When you listen to the radio at the end of the song and everybody's cheering wildly and chanting their name, uh, that's a time when a musician should be rebuking a crowd and saying, no, glory to God, not to me. And so I found that as a, a good cure-all for, for whether I should listen to this or not, or whether I should admire this person or not. So Excellent. that's what I was thinking of. Did you have a question, too? I, I do have a quick question. What's the yes. question? Uh, the biggest problem I come across is friends who have turned away from our Adventist church. And for the reason uh, I believe is because we are Laodicea. It's not in the future. It's in the present and even in the past and in the future. And it hasn't really been a, a addressed a whole lot, I believe, from the pulpit. But I've had friends that have been really scared away from the church from the way that uh, the, the Phariseeism that's going on. And in seeking to bring them back to the truth, I, I have counseled them, you know, if, if Christianity is a dirty word to you, which it is to a many, go ahead and throw it out. If Adventism is a dirty word to you, maybe even let that one go. But, but seek Jesus primarily and seek the scriptures, the scriptures and surrender everything to him. But I, I have my own fears because I had, I had trouble growing up in the church and seeing uh, hypocrisy and, and Phariseeism. And I wonder, how do I minister to these friends? What, is there some ideas that any of you could give me to really bolster that answer? Hypocrisy and how do you deal with friends who are turned off by hypocrisy? One, uh, I don't have the answer, but I just want to refer you to um, Eugene Pruitt actually covered that in his, um, one of his talks today, Snares of the Devil, which you can um, listen to on Audioverse in two weeks, but I'm sure he could and answer it as well. And I'll say something different here. I, I will. In the book Evangelism, you can find a whole section of Ellen White's personal experience with reaching people. And one of the most beautiful stories there was when she was in Europe, there was a young man who had been an Adventist, but he had made some mistakes as a young person, and he had been treated quite harshly. And when he was treated harshly, he had stopped attending church, stopped keeping the Sabbath, and uh, had eventually taken up a trade as a watchmaker and was near the end of his apprenticeship that would land him a great job as, wa as a watchmaker in Europe, Ellen White set her heart on winning this ex-Adventist. And here are some of the principles that she used. One was philosophical. In her own mind, she realized that he had been treated too harshly by his brethren, that the mistakes he had made were the kind that young people make and shouldn't be treated with the kind of severity that you would treat someone who was like a real rebel or, or hard-hearted. And then she went out of her way to ask him to fix her watch. She sought him out and, and had him work. So he did, 
and she invited him to come hear her speak. After she had a friendship, not that she could invite him to come listen to someone else, but, but where there was relationship, she invited him to come to listen. And he came to listen to her. And while he was there, she met with him afterwards, and she pled with him to give his heart to the Lord. I'm thinking right now of a man who had left the church, it's Heidi's brother, David, who had grown up Adventist, left and Heidi prayed for him intensely every few minutes for a day or two. And then I pled with him to give his life back to God. Maybe this idea of pleading with people is an art that we've lost. It doesn't have to be done in a fancy way. It just shows that we're really earnest in what we're saying. And Ellen White urged the man to make a decision immediately, knowing that if he would only delay being a Christian, just delay it by a few weeks, he could finish his apprenticeship and have a good job and make his own hours. But she didn't wait a few weeks. To wait a few weeks would be to communicate that the gospel wasn't as important as having his apprenticeship finished and having a good job. She requested, pled for, and in fact what she said is she wasn't going to let him go until he made one. But you know what that is. That's just an earnest way of speaking. And he did. He gave his life to God that night. He didn't sleep that night, and the next morning told his employer that he was quitting his job. It's just a beautiful example of a success in winning an ex-Adventist, and I think it could be helpful in many cases. One question here. Um, we're all told we need to have a devotional life. What are some very practical ways that um, the young people here at Western Youth Conference can either start or hopefully, in cases, improve their devotional life. Because what I found at uh, both at our conference, um, at GYC, and sometimes in my own life is that my devotional life is not consistent. It's not what I want it to be. So what are some practical pointers along those lines? When I was, I believe, 16, I made a vow that I had been able to keep. And it was, it's had a huge impact on my life. And that vow was I would spend at least five minutes every day in God's word. The reason I chose five minutes is because I didn't want to make a vow I couldn't keep. God takes our vows very seriously. And I wanted to make something that I could keep. And I know that some days it's unrealistic to spend 60 minutes in the Bible. If you're on a transcontinental flight or transatlantic flight, I don't sleep well and I don't read well on those flights. And maybe having an hour of devotions is not realistic. Since making that vow, I can honestly say to my knowledge, I have never missed a day having devotions. Most of the time, it's many times longer than five minutes. There are some days, though, it is only five minutes but I do get that time in with God, and it's really helped maintain that connection. That's just something that's helped me. I began having devotions when I was uh, 11, and what really lowered the quality of my devotional experience was television and movie images coming into my mind while I was trying to interact with spiritual material. You know, cutting out the competition has increased the quality of my devotional life. And I just highly recommend getting rid of those media inputs. 
that have the ability to demand my attention and come back to my memory without even my request. And that's helped me. And you know, today, um, for young people, it, uh, movies and, 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 and so forth have still a, an impact on our, our love of the word. But I think it's the internet can sometimes be just as bad of an influence. And I, I think that a good principle, a good, an, a good commitment to make is that your time with God comes before you get online. <laughs> because, you know, once you get started online, um, at least it's easy just to have all of your discretionary time gone. And um, if you don't make it a habit and a principle of, of creating a sterile environment for your devotions, of saying this is going to be God's time and I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, you can do without updating your Facebook page for a day. But when you go days without doing your devotions, it will have an impact on your life and a negative impact on your life. And um, the other thing that I just real quickly, um, I often have found helpful um, if my devotions are sort of stagnating, if I find myself sort of like, what am I studying anyway, and just sort of idly reading, um, sometimes it's just good to have a system. It's good to have a, a plan, and especially if you're just beginning your devotional experience, having a system so that you're not just leafing through and looking for something interesting. Uh, and, and so one of the things that I recommend is to take one of the more devotional books by Ellen White, Desire of Ages, Christ's Object Lessons, um, any of the actually Conflict of the Ages series, Patriarchs and Prophets through um, Desire of Ages and Acts of the Apostles particularly. And you know how in the chapter headings you have off in the bottom of the page they say which Bible passages that chapter is based upon, and then read both the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy together. And in the Bible, you sort of get a tutorial on how to study the Bible and how to apply it to your life, because what Ellen White is doing is she's taking those passages and she's making practical application. And so you're learning how to read the Bible with, a, with an eye on applying it to your heart. And secondly, pray about what you're reading. Sometimes we, can, we tend to think of devotions just as reading. And prayer is just as important, if not more important, as, the, as what you read um, of inspired writings. We need to be praying. You don't have to segregate your prayer and your study time. You can pray as you're reading. Pray, pray that God will impress you of what's the importance of this verse for you today. Help just pray through what you're reading. And so you won't have to separate, this is my study time, this is my prayer time, but it's your devotional time together where it's a two-way communication with you and God. And that's what makes it the most meaningful for me. Yeah, just a couple thoughts. Um, I, I really recommend before your feet hit the floor to roll over as soon as you wake up, put your head on your pillow, you know, roll over on your bed, get on your knees. If it's your cold, get under your covers. And, and just pray. Even before you get out of bed and your feet hit the floor, it's just right away, first thing, roll over and just pray for a little while. Uh, one of the things, probably the key thing that has helped me in my devotional life more than anything else is John sixteen thirteen, that where Jesus said, when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. And so one of the things that I've done so many times, and I still do it, is to pray for the Holy Spirit. Uh, a lot of times we just don't do that. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 11, he said, if, you're, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit 
to those who ask him. And so I think we should be praying specifically for the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think it's a good thing to do every day. And the more we do that, then what happens is the Bible becomes more alive. The, the scriptures become more powerful in our lives. And uh, as um, I think it was Chester that mentioned a, a devotion, you know, a plan. I, I think that not only are the books that he mentioned good, but, but to pick a book like um, Upward Look. I, my Upward Look is almost worn out. It's falling apart because I've read it over and over and over and over and over again. And I pick the day, whatever day it is, uh, June you know, 19 or 18, and I go into my Upward Look in the morning, June 19, and I'll read the devotional for that day. And there's a lot of good books like that, Our High Calling, um, God's Amazing Grace. There's a whole series of, uh, of these devotional books by Ellen White where you just pick, you just find the day, whatever day it is, and then when you get up out of bed and you, you know, do what you do and get organized, you sit down and find a spot where you'll read that page for that day and then pray. And another good thing is to try to find a Bible verse that you can think about during the day, not just when you have your five-minute or more devotion, but find a Bible verse that you can think about during the day, when you're at school or when you're at work or whatever you're doing. And to develop habits like this, where we pray before our feet hit the floor, we pray for the Holy Spirit, we have a regular devotional book that we use, and we think of a Bible verse during the day. If we'll start doing those simple things on a regular basis, uh, we will experience real spiritual power that will come into our lives. Amen. Thank you. One more question. The question I have seems um, like a no-brainer, but then when I started thinking about it more, it got really complicated for me. And it was when my mom told me that she was not going to go to a wedding because it was on the Sabbath. And I thought, Mom, it's a spiritual event. Come on. Let, you know, it was our niece, her niece, her granddaughter, my niece. And, um, and so I just was really praying about it that I really wanted God's direction on it. And, you know, if someone is an unbeliever and they're getting married on the Sabbath and they're inviting you and it could be a close relative you know, we know the Sabbath is going to be the end time test, you know, and then we're still supposed to reach out to our family in Christ. So the question is, you know, what is, you know, that's the question. Did, did you get the question? <laughs> well, there are some questions that it's hard to have just cut-and-dried, black-and-white answers for. And um, and this could be one of those questions. And if, 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 uh, if I were you, I would, um, I would respect your mom's convictions if she doesn't feel comfortable going to the wedding. But I think your question is also, what should I do? Is it appropriate for me to go to the wedding? And that's something that I think that you need to spend some time uh, considering and, and, and praying with the Lord over. It sometimes um, it goes back to what our, what our purpose for going to the wedding is. Um, I can imagine a situation if a family member is not a believer, and a wedding obviously is a very important occasion in their life, when your presence not being there would be seen as an insult or a slight or somewhere somehow where they feel that you know your 
your customs or your traditions are more important than they are. And I, um, I think that that um, particularly if there's, a, you know, the, if the environment or the reception is something that wouldn't be appropriate for Sabbath, I may not be able to go to that at all. But a wedding, as you mentioned, is a sacred event, and I, while I wouldn't plan one on Sabbath, I think that if your motivation for going is to be a witness and to love your family member, then, and you feel comfortable after praying about that and considering it, then I think that that is something that, that I would do if with that motivation. If it's just because I want to go to a wedding and a friend's getting married and I want to be there and I want to enjoy it, then I think that's a little, a little different situation. Um, but I think that's, that's a question where I wouldn't condemn someone who said, no, I can't do it, um, I don't feel comfortable, but neither would I judge someone who said, I feel God is calling me to go to this wedding, and um, I want to be there for my friend. And it, it's a little related to how we are friends with the world, or how we are in the world but not of the world. And I just real quickly, I want to share with you what John Wesley said when he talked about being friends with the world. John Wesley said, there are three reasons when we can be friends, like close friends, with someone who is not born again, someone who's not a believer. One is when courtesy demands it, when the business of life requires it, or when we have a reasonable hope of doing them good. In other words, this, isn't, this friendship isn't for my benefit. I'm not, I'm not going to choose someone to be my friend that I'm going to open my heart to for my own edification, my own strengthening. But, but when, when in order to be, to be courteous as a Christian should be courteous, we should associate and be cordial with those who are unbelievers. When the business of life requires it, we're in the world, but we're not of the world, right? And when we have a reasonable hope of doing them good, when by spending that time with them, we truly believe that we can be a witness and an example and, and, and draw their hearts to us so that we can win them from the kingdom, when we have a reasonable hope for doing them good, then we spend time with the worldlings. And I think those are, those are three principles that have helped me through the years as I've chosen my friendships and how I use my time. Hmm. Part of this question is about the Sabbath. And uh, I'm glad that in the fourth commandment that it's not 30 or 40 pages long. Uh, what it says is that we ought to honor the Sabbath. Really, that's Isaiah 58. We want to, the Sabbath is honorable. And when we talk about showing honor to the day, if something is regulated, ritual, required, and standardized, it really doesn't have much honor to it at all. What I mean is, is that God wants me to think through what can I do to show honor to the day, and he wants you to think it through. But as soon as I make a rule for you, even if you keep it, it's not really any honor on your part. And so when the Pharisees made a lot of rules about Sabbath keeping, that didn't benefit the Sabbath at all. When Jesus came, part of what he wanted to do was to take away all that stuff. There was a better plan that each one of us look at God's law and seek for a way to show honor to his holy day, and then we wouldn't be making regulations and restrictions for each other. Yeah, just real quick, um and when you asked that question, I immediately my mind went back to the Garden of Eden, and I thought Sabbath and marriage. They're right there in the, in the same garden before sin. And so, you know, my conscience would tell me that if I can, you know, be a witness, if I can participate with my family, if I can witness a marriage on, this, on the seventh-day Sabbath, 
Um, and I think like what yeah, Pastor Pruitt said, I guess you're not a pastor. Teacher Pruitt, <laughs> Professor Pruitt, <laughs> that um, you know, it has to do with our choosing to honor God and what we do on that day and our mental relationship with him. So I would do it. That's what I, I would. One more question or no? Okay, one more. I've got one more question here because I don't see one from the audience. What has to happen before the latter rain can be poured out? Eugene just said a lot of things. Well, to get the ball rolling, I'll just say one of the things Ellen White speaks of um, is that the majority of God's church are to be co-laborers with him. So uh, that either means a lot of us get busy or there's a shaking that takes place, and um, or both, and hopefully, hopefully more the 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 former. Um, but but I'll just add one more thing to that. Before the latter rain comes, what the former rain, and the former rain is actually the preparation. I mean, you can't have the latter rain without the former rain. And when we experience the former rain, there's going to be a making right of sins. There's going to be a making right of re broken relationships between brethren and sisters in the church. There's going to be a power of Pentecost, because that's just the former rain, once again in the church. And that, that has to happen within our experience, within our churches, within our communities, within our homes. There needs to be a turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers and the brothers to the sisters, etc., and the brothers to the brethren um, before the... the before we can say we've experienced the former rain and therefore we're ready to receive the latter rain. I can think of three kind of maybe cut and dry things I need to do personally to prepare for the latter rain. One of them is I need to be putting away my sin. That is the day of atonement practice of each day searching my heart, where am I morally deficient? Where have I sinned? What have I done wrong? Turning away from those things. Putting away our sin is just what God has ordered to prepare us to be able to be filled with a power of the Spirit. That is, while sin is in my life, I can't be filled so well. Sin takes up the area that the Spirit would like to have. And so while my character has a spot or a stain, I'm not ready for the latter rain. Another thing I can do is to pray for the brethren. That's, in Joel 2, this is one of the conditions of the latter rain, is it's verse 17, is the priest between the porch and the altar saying, spare thy people, O God, give not your heritage to reproach. It's this experience of interceding for people who were more inclined to criticize, condemn, or censure. By praying for them, my love for them grows, my tendency to censure them decreases, and it really helps with this first issue, putting away my own sin. That third thing is I ought to be praying for the latter rain. God doesn't want me to take the latter rain almost as if it's a mechanical thing, that if I do the right things, it's coming. He would rather that I show by earnest and regular prayer how much I want it, that I plead for it, that I recognize this is the time for it. And it's a beautiful promise God has made to encourage us that the latter rain, isn't, it's not just a settled amount how much it's coming, and neither is it unlimited. It's coming in proportion to the prayers that are offered for it. The prayers that were offered 110 years ago for the latter rain are going to be answered 
every one of them, and no prayer that you offer for the latter rain from a sincere heart is going to be unanswered. It's going to make a difference in the power that's coming so that we never waste our time when we're praying for the latter rain. And I, I just want to add one comment to that. When we we're talking about uh, putting away sins, um, Ellen White says this. She says that uh, in, in coming to Christ, it's not merely about correcting this or that bad habit. And she says the first work is, is with the heart. And so we need to keep in mind that it's heart change, this transformation that we're looking for versus looking at trying to uh, chop this tree down by merely uh, knocking off the branches. That's not where it is. We need to go deeper than that and, and, and realize, and this goes to Chester's message uh, his first night, when you understand that we need to correct the sin uh, problem in terms of who I am and, and allow God to work from the inside out. Amen. With that comment, why don't we bow our heads for prayer? Thank you all for your questions. Dear Jesus, we thank you for what we've learned this hour and... I ask that through the rest of this conference, we will be praying for the Holy Spirit, praying for the latter rain, praying for what it is you want us to teach us, and praying about the things you have taught us during this conference. Thank you for your promise to be here with us and be with us through the rest of this day as we're preparing for your Holy Sabbath. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.